Well, good morning, everybody. So good to be with you and uh, worship with you after that great worship set, and we get to celebrate a baptism. Doesn't get much better than that. Uh, I was reminded of a story this week about a family that was driving home from church on a morning like today. They're all huddled in their minivan, and the dad is kind of venting about the service. He's like, you know, I didn't really like it. The music was so-so. The sermon was way too long. They had awful coffee, and he's like criticizing everything. And his little son in the back seat was a very close observer of everything that went on, and he was especially paying attention when the offering plate went by, and he said to his dad, Dad, it really wasn't a bad show for $2, was it? As you can probably guess, this morning we're going to talk about money and finances, which can be kind of uncomfortable in church. You see, the the benefit I have from my perspective is I get to see all of your faces and your body language, and anytime I'm in front of a church and I talk about money, I start to see people kind of get a little stressed out, a little bit anxious. Some people look a little angry. Some of you are, you know, reaching in your pocket and kind of covering your wallet just to make sure, you know, we're not trying anything funny. Some of you are having flashbacks of watching late night religious television, you know, some guy saying, send me all your money and you'll get a little eagle statue or something in return. So we understand that uh, money can be a complicated issue in the church, but we also recognize it's something that we have to teach about. It's something that we have to talk about because Jesus did. In fact, Jesus talked more about money and finances in the gospels than heaven and hell combined. And I think that's because Jesus knew, of course, that money would be one of our biggest struggles. And in fact, it would be one of the biggest competitors for our heart. And so what we say around here at Calvary is we don't want something from you. We don't want you to feel manipulated or feel any pressure at all. We don't want something from you. We want something for you. We believe that God has a plan for your life, and that includes everything in your life, and that includes your finances and how we interact with money. So we're kicking off a new series today called Live Generously, because we have the most generous God, and He invites us into a fulfilling life where we can live out generosity in all of who we are, where we can live with open hands instead of closed hands. So the passage that we're going to camp out in for the next three weeks is just three verses out of the book of 2 Timothy, chapter 6. And I'd like to read it for you, and then each week we're basically going to go one verse at a time. So 2 Timothy, or sorry, 1 Timothy, chapter 6, starting with verse 17. Paul says, "...command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant." nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. Now, Paul begins 
with some very interesting words, and I think they probably grabbed your attention like they grabbed mine. He says, command those who are rich in this present world, to which many of us say, yeah, Paul, give it to those rich people. They need to hear this, right? I mean, those rich people, who do they think they are? But the reality is, of course, we are all incredibly rich. If you don't believe me, just check out the stats. If you have between forty dollars and $50,000 of income a year, you are in the top 1% of wage earners on earth. Do you know that? Between forty dollars and $50,000 a year in household income puts you in the top 1% in the world. Now, the thing is, it's kind of curious. I notice none of you were jumping up and down saying hallelujah, right? Many of you still look really skeptical. Like, you don't really believe it. Like, you're not really sure about it. I mean, look at all those other people. Look at my neighbors. Look at, look at the people across town. Look at the people on TV. I mean, those are rich people. I don't feel rich at all. And you see, that's the problem is even though we have been blessed beyond imagination, even though God is such a generous God, most of us, no matter where we're at on the income bracket, simply don't feel rich. Now, I think this is because of a a few different things. First of all, I think we simply are in denial a lot of times. We don't feel rich because we're in denial about it. Now, think about when you meet a new person, how you describe yourself oftentimes. You say, you know, I'm so-and-so, I'm I'm a hunter, I'm a fisher, I'm an artist, I'm a music lover, I love these kind of sports, whatever else. But very rarely do you ever hear somebody say, oh, and by the way, I'm rich, right? We just don't share that with people. We're not comfortable talking about finances. And in the end, I mean, we really are in denial, No one ever wants to admit how rich they are. Now, I remember a time when I was in high school, and my dad's church up in Shoreview was sponsoring a pastor over in Tanzania, Africa. And after raising some money, they brought this pastor over to Minnesota to study at Luther Seminary and to be a part of our church for a few months. And his name was Pastor Ernest. And I still remember he came and he got off the plane and somebody picked him up and we were going to have this big dinner for him at a congregation member's house. It was one of my friend's parents' house. And so our family went over to celebrate and to meet Pastor Ernest. And he came in and he's like in shock because it's winter and he's never seen snow before. And he comes in and it's just, you know, a, a moderate, nice house in Shoreview, just your typical suburban home. And everything that he saw was blowing his mind. And he just kept saying over and over again, my, you are rich, which was horrifying to the host, right? They're like, we're not rich at all. You should see our next door neighbor's house or you should see this person, which is a completely ridiculous thing, right? This guy came from utter poverty. And from his perspective, we are amazingly rich. Now, Gallup did a survey a couple years ago, and they asked the question, how much does it take for you to be considered rich? How much do you think you would need to earn? And they found on average, it's $150,000 a year. But then the thing is, they went and surveyed people who made $150,000 a year. 
And those people said it's $300,000 a year. And what they observed is that basically it's about double whatever you're making is what people feel rich is. And what that tells us is being rich is a moving target. It's different for every one of us, and it's almost always way more than we currently have. Nobody wants to admit that they're rich. Everybody knows somebody else who's rich. But church, this is such a vital thing because if we can't even come to terms with how blessed we've been, if we can't even admit how rich we are in the scheme of all things of this world, then how will we ever get good at it? How will we ever learn to manage our money and our finances the way that God intends to experience the true life, the fulfilling life, the abundant life that he wants for us? Well, another thing about rich people, like all of us, is that we are so easily plagued with discontentment. We don't feel rich because we are simply discontent way too often in our lives. When you start to buy stuff, you suddenly realize you need more stuff to fill the void that you're trying to fill. Like you go buy version one of something and the next day version two comes out. And of course you need that until version three comes out. And it's a never-ending quest to find fulfillment through material goods. Now, I want to just bring up a few scenarios to help you kind of get a picture of who rich people might be. And so, the first scenario would be rich people, they sometimes bring a perfectly good cell phone into a store at the mall they trade it in and they come home with a perfectly good cell phone. Now, I know none of you have ever done this before, but a rich person would do something like this. How about this? A rich person has a closet full of clothes and they go and stand in front of it for a really long time and they say something like, I don't have anything to wear. <laughs> now, none of you have probably done that, but that's something that a rich person would do. How about this? A rich person might take all of the cabinets and appliances out of their kitchen, and they still work moderately well, and they replace them with other appliances and other cabinets. How about this one? Try not to offend you too much, but women, rich women might have 12 or 13 pairs of shoes and go shoe shopping. But men, you might have a garage full of tools or fishing gear or hunting gear and go out and buy more, right? That's something rich people would do. Now, most of you probably have never done that before. I remember a time I was doing ministry in Africa with my friend Kelly, and we were traveling in this very remote part of South Africa, and we came to a village that had never had white people in it before. And so they were super excited to see us, and they had all sorts of questions. Now, the thing is, even in this really remote part of Africa, they still have cell phones, and they still have the internet, and they still see news from around the world. But they had all sorts of questions about America. And the first question that the chief wanted to ask me was, is it true that in America you have little houses for your cars? Think of how amazing that is for people living in little mud huts. We have houses for our cars. In fact, I think the definition of a rich person might be that they have a house simply for their car. 
So Paul writes this letter to Timothy, who's his protege. He's trying to help him understand how to teach the people in his churches. And he starts out and he says, command those who are rich in this present world. Now, what would you say if you had a room full of rich people? What kind of advice, what kind of scolding would you want to give them? What would you say? Command those who are rich in this present world. Well, Paul says the first thing, command them not to be arrogant. Now, what does this tell us about Paul? Well, it tells him he must have known a lot of rich people, right? Because I think for every one of us, the more we are blessed, the more we accumulate, the smarter we think we are, right? I mean, we see this in the media. I mean, how many people get put on TV to share their opinion simply because of their bank account? right? In our society, we often think that salary kind of goes up in conjunction with IQ. We often look to people who are wealthy for wisdom and for advice, and we start to think that about ourselves, too, when God blesses us. You know, another example of this is when someone passes away and they give just a huge amount to a charity, Oftentimes, people are interviewed who say, we never realized how rich this person was. And why is that? Why does that get press? It's because it's so rare, right? People like to share their blessing. They like to be perceived in the way that rich people are oftentimes. But here's the thing, church. We can't ever forget where everything we have comes from. Have you ever seen a teenager driving a brand new BMW convertible down the highway? Now, when you look at that kid, what do you say? Wow, they must have worked hard for that convertible. (laughs) No, of course not. We say, man, daddy must have bought them a nice toy, or man, their parents are generous. In the same way, God looks at us and says, don't fool yourself. Everything you have is a gift from me. You don't deserve it. You didn't even earn it. This is simply mine, and I'm trusting it to your care. He looks at our entire life, and he says, don't ever forget, I made you. I made the air that you breathe. I sustain you. The only reason you are alive today is because of my generosity. But you know, because of how rich we are in so many ways, We have this tendency, we have this tension in our life where arrogance and pride and entitlement start to rise up. So then Paul goes on to say, command those who are rich in this world not to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain. Every single one of us here, no matter who we are, no matter what our life circumstances are, every one of us here puts our hope and our trust in something. Every single person here tries to find security and stability somewhere. And the thing is, when we get a promotion, when we get a raise, when we get a bonus, when someone wins the lottery, when someone is blessed materially, there's always a tension about where we're going to put our hope. We start to feel a pull 
that we can somehow earn and accumulate enough to be totally self-sufficient, to be totally on our own, where we don't need anyone else. You see, the tension is, for every one of us, our hope wants to migrate. Our hope wants to shift from being on God, the creator and sustainer of all, and shifting to something that we can manage, that we can keep our hands on. And you see, what happens then, when we let our hope migrate, is we start to hold on tightly to whatever we have, And when we hold on tightly for security and confidence and assurance, well, suddenly we realize it doesn't feel like enough to support us. And so we need more and more and more. And we hold on tighter and tighter and tighter. And we live under the illusion that we can somehow accumulate enough to be bulletproof, to be untouchable. Solomon He was not only the wisest man to ever live, he was also the richest man to ever live. He lived about a thousand years before Jesus, and he totally understood this tension in his life. He wrote the book of Proverbs, and in Proverbs 18.11, he says, The wealth of the rich is their fortified city. They imagine it a wall too high to scale. You see, the tendency we all have is to imagine that we can somehow accumulate enough, we can somehow scrounge together enough to build walls around our life that will protect us from anything that can come at us. And we hope that we can just build those walls big and high enough that we can also encompass our spouse and our children and our extended family and maybe some friends. But as we build those walls, we always want to get them higher and higher and bigger and more solid, hoping that we can fend off whatever life will throw at us. And what that causes us to do is to shift our hope from being on God through faith and trust and instead trusting and hoping in ourselves. Now, how much money do you think you would need to protect you against everything life can throw at you? How much money would you need to weather every storm to protect you from every life circumstance that you could encounter so that nothing could touch you, so you could be completely fearless and you could be totally secure? And before you even arrive at a figure, I know the answer for every single one of us here. It is more than we currently have right? Every one of us knows we don't have enough to truly protect us from everything life has to offer. But if we let our hope migrate, if we let our focus be on the things of this world, it's going to be a never-ending quest to try to build up those walls to which Solomon says it's something that we're just imagining. He's saying it's an illusion because it really is something outside our grasp. I worked at a Bible camp every summer when I was in college out in southwestern Minnesota. And it was on this beautiful lake. And right across from the camp, there was a doctor who was very prominent in town who was building the most beautiful lake home. And we watched it being constructed over the course of a few summers. And finally, the last summer I was working at the camp, he had it completed. He had a huge retirement celebration. 
and he had also bought the most beautiful brand new sailboat. It was a J-22 with just great wood trim on it, and it was moored out in front of his lake home. The very first morning of retirement, he made a big cup of coffee. He went down to a sailboat. There was a nice wind on the lake, and he went out for a sail. About six hours later, they found him drifting. He had had a heart attack and died on his boat. You see, we don't know what's going to happen in the next year, the next day, even the next minute. And there's no way that we can accumulate enough, that we can save enough to protect us from every single thing that life can throw at us. You see, as we increase in wealth and riches, our hope tends to migrate. And when we're trying to find security and protection, it causes our hands to close that much more. And that's why statistically, poor people are so much more generous than rich people. You see, poor people never live under the illusion that they can somehow accumulate enough to be protected from all that life can throw at them. And instead, what we see again and again is that poor people live with open hands. Have you ever encountered this before? When I've been on mission trips, and it's an amazing thing to see, people who literally have nothing, yet they have completely open hands. What's mine is yours. If you need something, come over to my place. No one ever goes without. Statistically, poor people are so much more generous than rich people. You see, the thing is, when we start to accumulate, when we start to let our hope migrate, we start to think, you know what, I can't afford to be generous right now. I mean, because what about all these things? I mean, I've got to protect what I have. I've got to hold on with closed hands. Maybe someday in the future I can afford to be generous. But here's the thing, church, if your hope is in money, you will always need more than you have. And you're going to grab on tightly, and you're going to scrounge together as much as you can, and in the end, you're going to end up a miserable, selfish, rich person. Now, even with all the stats that I've thrown at you, some of you still aren't convinced that you're actually rich. But here's the truth, no matter who you are and where you're at and coming to terms with that, your hope is already starting to migrate. No matter where you're at in life, the tension always is your hope is starting to migrate. It's really the essence of sin. Sin makes us turn inward on ourselves. Sin makes us put ourselves number one. And so instead of putting our hope and our trust in God who supplies all that we have, we start to turn inward. We start to try to protect what we have. We try to build up our defenses so we can go it alone. Every person here has this tension going on in their life. Our hope is starting to migrate. We all try to find hope and security in things of this world. But this is where Paul clearly tells Timothy, he says, command those who are rich in this present world, command every single one of us who's blessed to live in America, just put your hope in God. Don't hope in those other things. Put your hope in God. Jesus talked about money so much because he knew it would be the chief rival between us, where we're going to put our hope, our loyalty, our allegiance. Are we going to give it to money? Or are we going to give it to God? 
You know, the reality is very few of us ever struggle with whether we're going to give allegiance to Satan or God, right? That's just not a struggle we typically have. But our struggle is, who are we going to put first? Are we going to put our investments in our bank account first, or are we going to put God first? Where is your hope? Where is your trust? It's a constant battle that we face every day. If I only had a little bit more, if I only had a little bit more, then everything would be different. Jesus said, wherever your treasure is, that's where your heart is. It tells us the truth that our heart follows our treasure. He says, your money and your wealth can easily become a substitute for God. And you can't serve two masters, Jesus said. You can either serve God or you can serve money. You can't do both. So we're reminded to hang on to God. To be open to what he has for us. To be open to what he wants to do in our life. Because he is the only solid foundation that will never let us down. Now Paul says one more amazing thing about God here that we can't ever forget. He says, put your hope in God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. God is the provider. Now think about what that means for a moment. Why would you ever put your hope in the provision when you can put your hope in the provider? Why would you ever put your hope in the gift when you can put your hope in the giver? Why would you ever try to build walls and try to find security out of the things of this world when you have ultimate security in the Lord over all of creation? Every single thing that you have, every single thing I have is a gift from God. The air we breathe, the food we eat, the clothes we wear, every single thing that we have is a gift from God. Psalm 24 verse 1 says, The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. Notice there's no footnote. It doesn't say the earth is the Lord's and you know, the things that he kind of randomly scattered around or, you know, not including the things that you feel you earned or you deserve. Well, it says the earth is the Lord and every single thing in it, the world and all its people even, belong to him. It all belongs to him. We're just taking care of it for a brief amount of time. And as we're going to learn next week, what Paul tells Timothy is that Really, God has given us all that we have for the sake of others. In the end, it's not the one who has the most toys that wins. Really, what life is about is how we can bless others with what God has blessed us with. And if you ever have a question about God's commitment to this, God's character about this, just remember that he gave you the most precious and priceless and valuable gift in the history of the world. And it cost him the life of his only son. The cross is an illustration of God's generosity. And the Bible tells us that Jesus died for us while we were still sinners, before we could ever pay him off, before we could ever earn it, and before we could ever deserve it. That is a heart of generosity. So my question for you today is why put your hope in riches? when you can put your hope in the one who richly provides.
Why put your hope in riches when you can hope in the one who richly provides? Church, if the stock market crashes tomorrow, if you get terminally ill, if your marriage falls apart, if your child wanders away from the faith, if a terrorist attacks tomorrow, the size of your bank account, the size of your portfolio isn't going to make a difference. Consider who you're putting your hope in today. Has your hope migrated? Are you trying to cling tightly to something that will not protect you? You see, when our hope is misplaced, it leads to greed, it leads to ungratefulness, and it leads to entitlement. When we keep our hands closed, instead of living generously, it ends up making us unhappy, bitter people. Jesus said greed is when we keep for ourselves what God has given us to bless others with. And he's very clear, the reason we are blessed is to be a blessing to others. So someday, sooner or later, your perspective is going to change. It might be a phone call. It might be a diagnosis. Or it might just be towards the end of a really long life. But at that point, your bankroll, what kind of car you drive, how big your house is, how many stocks you own, it's not going to matter one bit. What's going to matter is your relationships with others and your relationship with God. I mean, we all know you can't take stuff or money with you when you go. Now, the thing is, God is still going to treat us with amazing grace because that's the kind of God we serve. But you won't ever get this life back. You will never have another chance to make an impact. You won't ever have a chance like today to go and love people in Jesus' name, to go make heaven a more crowded place, to go live out the mission that God has given us. Don't waste a day running after things that won't last. Don't spend your life neglecting relationships, trying to chase something that in the end is so empty like money or status or power. I want to invite you as we close today to make a commitment in how you live your life. I want to invite you to make this commitment. Maybe it's something that you remember each day every time you feel your hope starting to migrate. Here's the commitment. I will not place my hope in riches but in the one who richly provides. When you see someone driving a brand new car next to you and you think, man, I'd be so much happier if I will not place my hope in riches, but in the one who richly provides. If you think, you know, I, I don't have enough to share during this holiday season. I mean, I got to take care of myself. I will not put my hope in riches, but in the one who richly provides. Now, one of the ways that we can demonstrate our trust and our hope in God is by how we choose to manage our money. And you see, Scripture gives us a very clear teaching on God's money management program. You see, He cares about every aspect of our life. And so He teaches us how we can live within the bounds that He's given us, how we can live a truly generous life. 
And so what he asks us to do is to first give 10% to him. And remember, the whole 100% is his in the first place. He asks us to return the first 10%. It's called the first fruits. To return that to him as a sign of our trust. What I like to think of is when we give that first 10% away, we're telling our money, you're not the boss of me. I'll show you who's boss. I'm going to give it to God. Then he asks us to save 10% and then live on 80%. 10, 10, 80. Give, save, live. Now think of how countercultural this is. In our society, our country today, most people are living on what? 105%, 110%. So why so many are living with crippling debt. But God says, no, live with margin. 10 to him. 10% to save and live on 80%. And now you have margin. Now you have security. Now you have the ability to be generous with others. And then God says, watch how I bless you. Watch how I provide for you. And so next week, we're going to have the opportunity to bring our pledge cards forward. If you're a member here at Calvary, you already received them in the mail this week. We'll also have extras out at the info desk, and they'll also be in the pews next week. Now, there's no pressure. There's no obligation. This is between you and God. But it's a way for us to say, God, I trust you. I put my hope in you. I'm not going to let my hope migrate. I'm going to make this commitment to your mission in and through this church. So I simply ask you this week to spend some time in prayer. Ask God how he's asking you to respond in faith. We don't give out of obligation. We give out of love for Jesus because of what he's done for us. I mean, he gave up his life for you. And so what does it look like to respond to him? Don't let your hope migrate. And next week we have the opportunity to show that in action. To say together, I will not put my hope in riches, but in the one who richly provides. Let's pray. Gracious God, we give you thanks for your amazing generosity, that your heart is a heart of love and grace and giving. And God, we thank and praise you for the greatest gift that we've ever been given the gift of your son, Jesus Christ. God, help us to understand how greatly we've been blessed, to not deny it, to not deflect it, but instead to embrace that we are truly rich people that you have blessed in countless ways. And God, my prayer for myself and for every person here is that you would help us live open-handed, Help us not to put our hope in things of this world, but instead to put our hope fully in you. Help us to live generously as you teach us to. Help us not to start to feel entitled or unhappy or ungrateful, but instead to simply celebrate what a great God you are and what an awesome opportunity we have to give to others. And so, God, we trust our lives in every detail, 
and every penny to you. In the powerful name of Jesus and all God's people said, after our next song, we're going to have an opportunity to respond to what God has been doing in our heart this morning. If you'd like to come forward, there will be communion available. There will also be people willing to pray for you over at the prayer rail, or you for sure can stay where you're at and spend time in prayer there.